I want to talk about, just because I can't come up with a better title, I want to talk about rebuilding the walls out of Nehemiah. The, the subtitle will be The Valley of Ono. You don't want to go down to the Valley of Ono, right? And uh, so, so, so I, I want to preach from there this morning out of, out of Nehemiah. And I want to go through several different uh, parts. But, uh, but if you would, let's just, let's just pray over the Word together this morning and ask God to speak to our hearts. Heavenly Father... Uh, we thank you so much, God, for your goodness, for your spirit, Lord, that speaks to us, that leads us and teaches us, guides us into all truth, God. You keep us from error, and you teach us your ways, God, and you bring life to your word so that we can be transformed by it, Lord. And we believe that your word is, is powerful, God, that it's alive. And, Lord, that you have something to say to all of us this morning, God, specifically. And so I pray that you would open our ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little background about the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah's time, what had just happened before this is that because of Israel's disobedience to God, Israel had been taken captive into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel is in Babylon, in, in Babylonian captivity, and he becomes somewhat of, at least an associate of King Nebuchadnezzar, sort of his right-hand man to some degree. And, and he's, he's there praying three times a day. And while he's there, he's being resisted and all of these things. But he recognizes that the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that this captivity would only be for about 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, that there would be a King Cyrus that was prophesied that this King Cyrus of Persia uh, would, would actually release the people of God to go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and that they would do so. So in the book of Ezra, we see that at the end of that captivity, uh, uh, Ezra and some other people are sent back into Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild the temple. Now about 15 years after Ezra rebuilds the temple, uh, uh, what's his name here? Nehemiah is back still over in that area of captivity, and he is the king's cupbearer. And he hears word that the walls in Jerusalem have, have been burnt down because when they went back to rebuild the temple and to get things back in order for, for God and for the, the nation of Israel, things didn't go easy for them. They had a lot of resistance. There was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of things going on. And so Nehemiah gets word that, that there, there's this opposition and the walls around Jerusalem have been burnt. Here's what it says in, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Name your son that if you have one soon. That's a good name, Hakaliah. It says, it came to pass in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with the men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, names are so important in the Bible. First of all, it starts out with Nehemiah. You know what Nehemiah's name means? It means that Yahweh comforts. To me, Nehemiah is, a, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. 
Nehemiah is the king's servant, just the way that the Holy Spirit is the servant of Christ. He is the Spirit of Christ, but Jesus says that the Spirit does not speak of Himself, but He speaks about those things which are mine, and He brings them to you. Nehemiah is Yahweh comforts, and, and he's, he's the son of Hakaliah, which means, his name means, Yahweh enlightens, or Yahweh brings from darkness into light. And Hananiah comes to him. Hananiah means grace. And he begins to speak to him about the walls that are torn down in Jerusalem. And here's the picture of what that's trying to say, is that the Holy Spirit is always trying to bring comfort into our life, but He's also bringing the grace of God, the grace that Jesus has paid for us to have. And that grace teaches us about Jerusalem. Jerusalem means the teaching of peace. It means the teaching of shalom. That grace is doing something in our lives that is revealing the walls that have been broken down not only in our own lives, but the lives of our families, the lives of our communities. And He's revealing that because He knows that the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that He gives us will enable us to rebuild what has been broken down in our lives. I don't know about you, but when Jesus came into my life, the Holy Spirit started to do a work, and He started to rebuild in my life everything that the enemy had torn down. Amen? And here's the truth, is that the Scripture says is that when Jesus saves you, you become a person, this is prophesied, you become a person that rebuilds the old waste places. You become a person that restores the ruined cities. You become a repairer of the breach. That you are called, in a sense, to take on God's heart for not only your own condition, Because when God and the Spirit comes to you, sometimes He begins to reveal to you the walls that are broken down in your life, the walls that are broken down in your family, the walls that are broken down in your own community, and He begins to reveal to you that Jerusalem, the peace that God created us for, is torn down and destroyed. Amen? And if we begin to even look in our community, sometimes, oftentimes, if we really give it a good look, we notice that the walls, what God wants to do in our community, it's broken down. Now, here's the issue is that many people knew that the walls had been broken down. Many people knew that the walls had been burnt, right? They knew all about it. But here's the difference is that Nehemiah, Nehemiah saw that the walls had been broken down and it moved him. He cared about the walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you something. I've seen so many people, even Christians nowadays, that honestly at the end of the day, they don't care so much. And this sounds terrible because I know that most of the people that are in our church, they care about their children's spiritual life. Fathers lead their home spiritually. Fathers care about what's going on in their family and, and whether or not they're following Jesus and whether or not things are happening. But in our community, even people who name themselves Christians, oftentimes they don't even care or even begin to look at what's going on in their families and in their communities. They look at the walls that are torn down and they look at it with apathetic eyes and say, the walls have always been torn down. They've been torn down for over a hundred years now. The walls have been torn down. There's nothing we can do about it. But Nehemiah felt differently. And Nehemiah realized that, listen, I'm nothing but a king's cupbearer. There's nothing I can do, but his heart was moved. And that's the first step. The first step to, to rebuilding the wall is that the wall is built with earnest, intentional prayer. You're never going to do anything in your life until you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to share His heart with you about what's going on in your own life, what's going on in the lives of others, and what's going on in your community. And it moved Nehemiah so much that the Bible says that he, went, he fell down on his face and he wept. 
and he began to mourn and he fasted and he prayed certain days. Have you ever been moved about the condition of your own heart or the condition of your family or the condition of your community to the point that you began to weep and fast and pray for certain days? And let me tell you something, I could get up here and I could say, you know, and, and, and be harsh about that. But here, here's what I truly believe, is that the, that is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in us. Only the grace of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit can come to us and begin to share God's heart with us so that we see things the way that He sees. But what we have to recognize is, God, am I seeing things the way you see them? Am I selfish? Am I only focused on myself? Or am I open to you changing my heart and showing me what's going on and the walls that have been torn down, not only in my community, but in my own heart, God? The things that have been torn down in my own heart spiritually that I've not even seen. And see, he begins to pray earnestly. And nothing will happen until we truly begin to pray to God and seek God. There's been no movement throughout history of God doing anything without men and women who came together first in prayer and intercession and begin to call on God. That's one of the reasons that we have 24-hour prayer. You know, for a long time now, I've been meeting here on Thursday nights, and we have a handful of people that will come on Thursday nights and pray. And, but listen, I believe that God is raising up people, especially in this generation, that they don't have to be asked to pray because the Spirit of God... God is so moving in their heart that they have no other choice but to pray and but to call upon God because they recognize that there's things going on in their life, there's things going on in their community, there's things going on in the church that they cannot stand to see and they know that God has called the church and the people of God to be far more glorious than what they're being, that He's called us to walk in far more power and in far more love than we are actually walking in and we will not stop, we will not cease praying until we see God bring about these things and begin to rebuild the walls in our lives and in our communities. And he begins to see this. He begins to experience this. And so he begins to cry out to God, and he prays a prayer of repentance. You know, a lot, a lot of people in this day and age, I, I, I work with people who are drug addicts and, and different things like that, and some people today, they, they preach grace in such a way and I love to preach grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's that you didn't deserve it, but Jesus came after you anyway. He loved you so much that in your sin, in your darkness, in your mess, He came running after you. And you didn't deserve it, but He blessed you anyway. He loved you anyway to pull you up out of that stuff. But sometimes it's getting in our generation that the, the, the book of Jude says that people would preach grace in such a way that it would give people license to continue in sin. And the problem is with that is that that is not actually grace because grace does not cover you so that you can continue in sin. Grace breaks the power of sin off your life so that you are dead to sin and that you walk in a new lifestyle following Jesus. That's what the grace of God does. It doesn't cover your sin so you can keep living in it. It destroys sin in your life so that you're dead to it. That's what the grace of God does. And see, Nehemiah prays a prayer of repentance. And I've witnessed as, as drug addicts and people who have been in so much stuff, they've been raped, they've been molested, they've been abused. And oftentimes that's what calls and leads to their addiction. But when they come to a recognition of Jesus, you know the one thing that we don't say to them is, you know what, don't worry about it. Jesus has already taken care of everything. And I'll tell you why we don't do that. He has taken care of everything, but they must they have to repent. They have to renounce. Because what people have done in their sin is they have made an allegiance with the powers of darkness. 
And grace covers it and grace will get them out. But unless they renounce the allegiance that they've made with that sin and with the power of darkness, they give legal right, legal access to the powers of darkness to keep them bound. And Nehemiah knew that if he was going to cry out for his community, he was going to have to repent not only on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his community and say, Lord, we've, made a, we've aligned ourselves. We've made an allegiance with the powers of darkness that are selfish, that are focused on, on so many ungodly things. And God, we repent of that. We turn from that. We renounce that stuff and we're no longer living in it. For a lot of people, I know that it's, it's difficult, but listen, when you, when you are having sex outside of marriage, when you're getting drunk, when you're using drugs, when you're gossiping, look, there's a multiple list of things that God in His mercy and in His grace and in His love is calling to you and saying, your walls are broken down. And if you don't turn from those things and begin to allow the Spirit of God to build the walls back up in, you're going to allow the enemy into your life. And, I, and, and slowly but surely, he's creeping his way in. And he's tearing down the walls of our generation because we're afraid to deal with things like this. And even when I preach this, you know, there's a handful of people that will probably take that as a word of condemnation and say, well, I don't want to hear that stuff. God loves me. You better believe God loves you. And he loves you enough to say that's what, not what you were designed for. That's not what you were designed for. And you got to recognize that the walls in your life are being torn down. And you can't live in that position anymore. And it begins to break his heart. I'm going to tell you something. I used to be a drug addict. I used to be uh, 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 addicted to, to sexual foolishness and all sorts of different things. And it was not until I said in my life, God, I'm renouncing this. I can't live this way anymore. I want to be pure. I want to be right. I don't want my walls to be torn down. I want something to change on the inside of me. I can't stand living like this anymore. Until that happened in my heart, nothing changed. Nothing changed. My walls remained in rubble. This temple remained unbuilt. God couldn't use it. He couldn't dwell in it because it was broken down. It was broken down and God began to call me and the Spirit of God began to work in me. And listen, I know that so many of... I, I didn't even intend to go in this direction with it, but somebody in, uh, uh, that's hearing me this morning, God is saying, look, I know you love me. I know that you're a Christian. But I'm asking you to make sure that you don't allow these broken down walls to remain that way. I want to build these walls in your life. I want to get you back on the right track. I need you to lay these things down and turn from them and begin to walk this out with me. Now, here's the second thing, is that the wall is built with the king's resources. The wall is built with the king's resources. The wall is built with the king's resources. See, it would be easy for Nehemiah to say, well, you know, I would like to go and build the wall, but I don't have anything to build with. You ever feel that way when God calls you into ministry? Or, or calls you to do something. I would like to do something for God, but I don't have anything. Guess what? Nehemiah didn't have anything either. He had nothing. He was the king's cupbearer. He was a servant. He, did, he was not a construction man. He didn't know anything about building buildings. He knew nothing about that. But he knew that his relationship to the king meant that he had all the resources that he needed. And what I'm saying to you is that in your brokenness, the way that you are, whatever it is, God says, that's the place I want you to be. I want you to be in a place of absolute dependency upon me. I, I was reading something this week, and this was, this was really good. Any of y'all ever heard of Mother Teresa? Some of you? Well, anyway, she was a woman that really loved people, right? She, she loved people extravagantly. And, and, and so this guy 
he was, he was an ethicist or something, and he was trying to figure out how to live his life for God and what he, what he was going to do for God. And so he went to the place where Mother Teresa was, and it was, it was the home of the dying, where people were dying, and she took care of them and she loved them. And he got there, and he's going to spend a couple of weeks and pray and hope that God brings some clarity into his life. And so he's on his way there, and he meets Mother Teresa, and she says, What, should, what can I do for you, son? And he said, he said, Well, I want you to pray for me that I would have clarity. And she said, no, I will not pray that you have clarity. And he said, what do you mean you won't pray that I have clarity? I mean, that's a good prayer, right? It would be a good prayer. Wouldn't y'all like clarity? She says, clarity is the last thing you're holding on to, and you have to let it go. She said, and he said, well, what do you mean? She said, you're the one person. He said, you're the one person that seems to always have the clarity that I'm looking for, that I want. And she said, she laughed, and she said, I've never had clarity. I've always had trust. She said, I've never known exactly what God is asking me to do. I've never known the next step to take. I've never had clarity about what God wants to do with my life. But I've always trusted that He's leading every step that I take. And I take that step in full assurance of faith that if I go into this place that God is calling me, He is going to provide the resources that I need in order to get the job done. He will give me the strength when I need it. He will give me the wisdom when I need it. He will take care of me in the place that I I go, some of you won't step out on faith because you don't have clarity. And God is saying, you don't need clarity, you need trust. You need to step out on faith and know that it's not your own resources. You say, well, I don't have what I need, I'm not equipped. Good. Because when you're not equipped, you are in a weak position and God says that his strength is made perfect in your weakness. And when you're able to step out in faith, you know that your resources, God is going to provide what we need to move forward individually and as a church because of our relationship to the King. Amen. Your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Our God is the same God who took a, few fi- a couple of fish and a few loaves and fed 5,000 people. He says that he will supply all of our need according to his riches and glory. We don't have to worry about whether or not the resources are going to be provided to do what God is asking us to do. If we step out on faith, the resources will be available. And so Nehemiah goes to the king and he says, Look, king. The walls are torn down. I need to go back to Jerusalem and I need to build the walls there. And the king gives him all of the resources that he needs. He has everything that he needs and he begins to go to the place where he's at. In chapter 2 verse 15, it says, So I went up by night by the valley and viewed the wall. So he finally gets to Jerusalem and he says he went up by night by the valley and he viewed the wall. Other places it says three times that he examined the wall. Now listen, he goes up by night. He goes up in the darkness. And a lot of times when we are, as Christians are in darkness or in difficult situations, when we don't see clearly, a lot of times what we end up doing is complaining and thinking that God must not be with us because it's dark and I don't see clearly and things aren't going well. But let me tell you something. As a Christian, the Bible says that you are children of light. You are the light of the world. You were made for the darkness. The Bible says that in the last days that darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you. You know where light shines the brightest? In the darkest places. And when there's darkness in your life, it's not a time to complain and worry and doubt and criticize and question. When the darkness comes, it's a time to shine. It's a time to arise and go up. And that's what Nehemiah does. And he views the wall. He examines the wall. 
Now let me tell you something else about, about building walls is that if you're sincerely going to build a wall, you have to first examine the wall. Now let me just, let me just bring it from my perspective so I don't hurt anybody's feelings. I just hurt my feelings this morning. Um, you know, when I first started preaching, I would get up, and I, and I still do it probably quite a bit, and you're like, well, you still do the same thing now. <laughs> But when I first started preaching, I would just kind of get up and, 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 and holler at people and give people a hard time and all of that. And, and so for the most part, I didn't build relationships with people in order to bring them into a place of freedom in Jesus. I just kind of hollered at the situation, right? You ever had anybody that would do that? They just kind of holler at the situation from the outside. They don't want to get involved. They just want to holler at it from the outside, criticize it from the outside, say what ought to be done from the outside, Right? But if you want to experience real change, you actually have to get involved. See, that's what I love about like the ministry that we're doing at Bridge Street. Is that we can preach about our community inside these walls all day long. But until we get involved in what's going on in our community, there's no way that we rebuild the walls. That's a good word. I know y'all. That's a better word than y'all are amen. I want, and here's the other thing is that, you know, when we deal one-on-one with people, when I deal one-on-one with people, I get so deep into their business and so deep into their stuff that oftentimes, sometimes, what is holding them and binding them is so painful and so deep that they say, I don't want, I don't want to talk about this. But what I'm doing is I'm viewing the walls. I'm examining why the walls are torn down. I'm trying to figure out in your life where you allowed the enemy to come in and burn your walls down. Because if I don't find out why your walls are burnt down, I'm never going to be able to find out how to build the walls back. Because you've got to get to the root of the issue in, in your life and in the lives of others. You have to examine the walls. And you know that most people, most people see, like I said, I, deal with, I, get to, I get to work with people who struggle with addiction. And pretty much 99 times out of 100, addiction is not the problem. The problem is is that they have grown up in an environment where they have experienced abuse, they've experienced neglect, they've experienced intense pain, and the pain that is in their hearts leaves them so broken and so empty that they have to find something to fulfill them and numb that pain that's in their heart. And the people that we see that get free from drug addiction are the people that go back and deal with the wounds of their past and get healed and delivered and receive the love of the Father. And when they receive the love of the Father, they're healed, and the addiction breaks off of them like that. See, we focus on the addiction, and we even use drugs to get people off drugs. Let me know how that works for you. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. Somebody put that on Twitter. I understand the concept behind it, and I don't want to bash anybody for good intentions, but what I'm saying is is that if you're going to build walls, you've got to get to the root of the issue. You've got to get to the root of the issue, and, and, and you have to get involved. And he gets involved, and they say, you see the distress that we are in. They realize their need and their purpose. And in verse 18, it says, but they set, they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to do this good work. And then in Nehemiah chapter 3, what you see Nehemiah doing is he's beginning to call all of the people together. 
He's beginning to, to call for unity and, and for cooperation and to come together for a unified purpose to achieve a God-given goal. And here's what Nehemiah understands as a leader. And this is, this is what I love about Donald is he preaches this stuff more than anybody I've ever heard. But he, he, he knows and he understands that in order to get anything done, the people are going to have to have a, a unified vision. You know what division means? It means two visions. The people are going to have to have a unified vision and they're going to have to come together for a God-given goal. They're go- and and that, that, that power is released when people come together in unity, right? Even, even in the Old Testament in Genesis 11, God comes down and they're building a tower of Babel and they're, re- they're rebelling against God. They're building this tower and, and they're evil. They want to rebel against God. And they're building this tower and they're planning on building it to the heavens. And God comes down. He looks at the tower and he says, look, these people are of one mind, one language. Which is what we ought to be. One mind, one language. And he says, nothing will be impossible to these people. See, even God knows that even for sinners, if you get a group of people who hate God and they come together in unity, what they're going to do is going to prosper. You believe that? Even for people who don't know God, if they are unified with one purpose, they will make progress and things will happen. It works for godly people and ungodly people alike. And God knows that so much, but you know who knows it even better than God is the enemy. Satan knows that if we ever were to become unified with one purpose and one mind and one heart and lay aside our own agendas to come together, that we would be unstoppable. That's why he works so hard to keep us divided and disconnected. He works without ceasing to to keep us divided and disconnected. That brings me to my third point. When you build, when you choose to build, you will be resisted. You might as well just uh, get excited about it, right? Count it all joy that you're going to be resisted. If you choose to serve God, if you choose to live for God, you will be resisted, you will be challenged, it will become difficult at times, there will be opposition, you might as well just get excited about it and know that it's coming and realize that that opposition and that resistance is going to come. Amen? He's going to come. And listen, when he comes, there's these three dudes' names that comes. One of the dudes' names is Sanballat. It's an awesome name, right? You know what his name means? It's the craziest name in the world. It means sin has given life. Isn't that weird? Which sin is moon god. So he's saying the moon god has given life, but his name means sin has given life. And Sanballat comes out against them. He sees them coming to build the walls, and it says that he gets angry and very furious. Because when you start to do anything from God, for God, no matter how little it may seem, when you start to do anything for God, it makes the devil angry. It makes him very furious. furious. And see, this spirit, I want, you to, I want you to just take note of this and see if this is anything that you've experienced in your life. This spirit of Sanballat is a critical persecutor who brings false accusations against the work and the people that are putting their hand to the plow working for God's kingdom. Sanballat will actually is a spirit that will rally others to opposition against you. And his goal, listen to this, his goal is to discourage you, to get you to quit what God has called you to do. Have you ever been to, discouraged to the point where you feel like, man, I'm, just, I'm about to quit what God's calling me to do right now? Anybody ever been there? I'm just about to lay this down. 
That is the spirit that every single time anybody steps out to do any work for God, there is a spirit that rises up that begins to do this. In chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, it says that, that he laughed at them and mocked them and accused them of rebelling against the king. He begins to even say, look, he, he laughs at them, he mocks them. He says, what do you think you're doing? Matter of fact, he, he says, you're, you're not doing this for God. You're rebelling against God. God didn't ask you to do this because God knows who you really are. Anybody ever experienced that? Maybe two of you. What's so interesting about Nehemiah is, though, in verse 20, he says, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Because when you begin to face opposition, the first thing that Nehemiah did, and every time the opposition came, is that he made bold declarations in the face of the enemy. When the enemy comes, you have two choices. You can either resist him to the face and speak back to him the truth of God's word and of who you are, or you can allow what he's saying to marinate in your soul until it weakens you and discourages you and ultimately overcomes you. But he made a bold declaration. He said, listen, we're doing a good work, and you have no right here. You have no memorial here. This is God's work, and you can't come out against us because Jesus has stripped your authority and your power, and you have no right to come against us that's what he says to the enemy and then in chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 1 through 3 I want to go through this with you Samballot comes out against him again listen what he says it says but it so happened when Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews and he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said what are these feeble Jews doing will they fortify themselves Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So here's a few signs, giveaways, that you know that you're under some kind of demonic assault. Listen to what he says first. First he says, Feeble Jew. He calls them feeble Jews. The first thing that Satan will do to you is he will attack your identity in Christ. He will attack your personhood. He will attack whether or not you're even saved, whether or not you even know God. When Satan attacked Jesus, he said to him, if you be the Son of God, He's questioning whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you're called, whether or not you are a new creation, whether or not the power of the Holy Spirit is in your life. But the Word of God has already said, greater is He who is in you than he who is in this world. Christ has redeemed you. He's washed you. He's bought you with a price. And He's filled you with His power and with His love to accomplish the work. But see, Satan will attack your personhood, your identity. The next thing he says is, will they fortify themselves? He attacks your motives. See, he'll say, you know, you're doing something awesome, but truly your motives are all messed up. You're doing it for your own selfish reasons. And, you know, if you don't have a pure heart, you might as well lay this thing down anyway. He begins to try to make you feel guilty and unworthy of what God is calling you to do. I don't know about you, but whenever I was first called to preach... um, it was an interesting thing. The night before I was going to get up and preach for the first time ever behind the pulpit, I mean, I was laying on the floor, rolling around on the ground, pulling my hair. I ain't kidding you. Like, I was scared to death, sick in my stomach. It was terrible. 
And I, I, actually called, I actually called my pastor at the time, and I said, man, I can't do this. This ain't going to work. I'm not going to be able to do it. And he said, well, listen, just pray about it, and if, if you can't do it, then, I, then I'll cover for you. And I prayed that night, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, son, listen, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, mountains will be removed. I'm only asking you to trust me, to believe in me. And let me tell you something. When I first started preaching, I didn't know the Bible well. I didn't know anything. And I stood up and I was scared to death. I was trembling. I was shaking. But when I began to speak, all of a sudden, God, I could feel his presence. And I knew that he was there with me. And he helped me. And I delivered a message. And, and, and God began to take me on this journey. Because when God calls you to do something, you're never fully equipped yet. You have to step out in faith anyway. You have to believe, look, God, I'm going to do this for you. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if, it's, if things are going to happen. I don't know, but I'm going to step out on faith anyway, and I'm going to trust you to do what needs to be done. And you're never going to feel, feel real good about it all the time. I come here to, to drive to church this morning, and honestly, I never feel like, man, I'm so excited I get to stand up in front of people this morning and talk about God, and they're probably going to judge it and criticize it maybe a little bit in their hearts. And I, You know, you don't get, I don't get excited about it, but there are moments when I know that I know that God is speaking to me. And when God speaks to me and he says, I want you to deliver this word to my people, and I say, but Lord, I can't deliver it well enough. They might not even hear me. He says, it doesn't matter because I've chosen you, and you do what I've asked you to do anyway, and I will reward you for what I ask you to do, not for how well you do it. And you have to be obedient to the Lord in spite of your abilities, in spite of what you're able to do, in spite of what you think about yourself, in spite of your unworthy feelings. God is calling you to do something and He is entrusting it to you. And that is what is important to Him, that you will obey Him and step out and do what He's asking you to do. The third thing that, he, that they say is, will they offer sacrifices? See, what Satan will do also is he will attack your relationship with God. He'll say, well, you know, you don't even pray that much. And then if you are praying, he will attack you in such a way that you stop praying. If you are reading your word, he'll attack you in such a way. But he's going to try to keep you away from devotional life any way that he can so that you're not hearing God for yourself on a personal level. And you know you're under attack when your devotion to God is beginning to get difficult. Amen? So then he says, will they revive stones from the heaps of rubbish? He attacks your ability to accomplish the mission which God has called you. And we've already covered this. You don't have the ability in yourself, but through Christ you can do all things. Finally, he says, if a fox goes up, he'll break down their wall. What he does is, he attacks the quality of your life and ministry. Now, he does this to me all the time. He'll say, you know, Clay, I, I mean, I can't even believe you try to do what you do down there at the church. Because, I mean, think about it. It's pretty weak. And it's ineffective. And nothing good's happening. Yeah, y'all ever hear this voice? Anybody? I mean, you just, what you're doing is just, it's weak, and it's not that big a deal. You know, the church doesn't even need you, man. Because if you just left, nobody would even notice, and nothing would even happen. Let me tell you something. Even if nobody else in the church is noticing, God notices what you are doing. 
I mean, Janie, just a minute ago, I asked her to do me a favor, and you know what she said? She didn't, she didn't complain. She said, absolutely, I'll do it. And I guarantee you that that is written down in heaven because it was a servant's heart that said, somebody has asked me for help, and I've come alongside to help them. If nobody else notices what you're doing, God notices what you're doing, and He's writing it down in heaven because He sees the work that you are choosing to do for God. And it's so important, and I'm telling you right now, you say, well, what I'm doing is not as important as what you're doing. We are a body. Christ made that abundantly clear. And he said, we ought to honor the the, the parts that we don't think are the important parts. If you think you're a pinky finger, we honor you more than the shoulder. Amen? We honor you more than the arm. Why? Because without you, this thing is not going to work. You are called to do something for God. Let me tell you something. Sheb comes down here all the day and he helps helps me. And what he does goes unnoticed here. But he works here, and he helps me, and he helps Donald, and he's constantly pouring himself into this ministry. And without him, we wouldn't be able to make it. But you know what? For the most part, it goes unnoticed. And you know what? He doesn't look for a pat on the back. He does it because he loves God. And not only that, he recognizes what God has called him to. And he doesn't look at it as unimportant. He looks at it as very important. Just because he doesn't get up here and preach a sermon doesn't mean that what he does is not valuable. What he does is essential. What you do is essential to the kingdom of God. You getting involved in small groups, you getting on a core team, you choosing to serve, you working with the children's ministry and the youth ministry, you getting involved in the worship team, you encouraging one another, it is essential to the kingdom of God. And we cannot build the wall without every single person at their post. He, brought, he brings them together. And listen to this. It says that in, in chapter 4, verse 8, that when they came, they looked to, to create confusion among the people. You ever been confused trying to serve God? They bring confusion, and here's what it does. Nehemiah gets them together, and they begin to pray. Every time the enemy came, they just prayed. They just continued praying every time the enemy came. And it says that with one hand, they would work on the construction, and with another hand, they would hold the sword. Because here's the thing, here's what you have to understand, is that what we're doing is a battle. And we're doing the work of God, but while you're doing the work of God with one hand, you better hold your sword in the other hand. Because the enemy is going to resist you. This is why the Bible says that you ought to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance for all the saints. Be praying for your church. Be praying for the people around you. Be encouraging the people around you. Put your hand to the work but keep a sword in your other hand. And then he begins to encourage them and he tells them, listen at what he says in, in, in chapter 4 verse 14. He says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Listen, and I'm speaking specifically to men in here. Fight for your homes. Fight for your children. Fight for this church. Fight for your brothers and sisters. Because we got brothers and sisters every day that are going through difficult challenges and we are to bear one another's burdens to strengthen one another. And he says this to them. The fourth thing is, is that the wall is built through unity and cooperation. The wall is built through unity and cooperation. See, 
Nehemiah begins to organize the solution. And one of the solutions that he organizes is that he's going to put people in groups. And in these groups, they are going, they are going to come together. And they're going to build the part of the wall that is out in front of their house. Amen? They're going to build the part of the wall that is out in front of their house. Let me tell you something. You're not going to necessarily build my part of the wall, but I'm not going to build your part. Amen? Every single one of us, if one of us does not get on the wall and build that wall, he puts them in small groups of people. And this is why small groups are important, because when we get together in small groups, what we're doing is we're encouraging one another and strengthening one one another in the day-to-day labor of the building of this wall. That we're getting together, we're sharing life, we're praying for one another, we're building one another up in the Word. And all of a sudden we are focused on our section of the wall and we're working together to make sure that that thing is built and unity comes along. You know in the Bible in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, he says that he looks out on this valley of dry bones. And all of the valley of dry bones, all the bones, they were dry and they were disconnected. Now, a lot of times churches are this same way. Now, don't take this too negatively, but a lot of times churches are the same way. They're dry and they're disconnected. Amen? People come in, but they're in, inwardly their spiritual life is dry. It's dormant. They're not stirred to do anything for God. And for the most part, they're disconnected from the body. In our, especially in our generation. You know, back in their day, community was a big thing. In our generation, individualism is a big thing. I'm going to do mine. It's me and Jesus. Let me tell you something. You and Jesus has never been the, the, the strategy of the Word of God or the strategy of Jesus. Jesus had 12 guys that lived with Him every single day for three years. It was community. It was about being bound together. It was about being connected. And see, whenever He says, Ezekiel, I want you to speak to these bones, and I want you to prophesy to these bones, and He says when He began to prophesy to the bones, they begin to come together. And when they began to come together, all of a sudden he said, now speak to the wind, speak to the Spirit of God, that, the, that, that God would breathe upon these bones that they may live. And here's what you have to understand is that God cannot pour out. We call and ask for God to pour out His Spirit, but God cannot bring revival to this church, to our people, until we come together in unity and cooperation. God will not breathe and pour His Spirit out on what is disconnected. So unity and cooperation is a simple, is, is, is an essential thing. And unity is accomplished when a group of people lay down their own agenda and give themselves to a purpose that is bigger than themselves. You know, he begins to talk about how he organized these groups and he, he, he lists them in chapter 3 and he says, and he, and he lists everybody. I mean, he lists perfumers. I don't even know what a perfumer is. Y'all know any perfumers? He said the perfumers were here building the wall. No matter what they were, every single person, women, children, single, married, whatever they were, they were on the wall building the wall, and it would say, and next to him, and next to him, and next to him. I don't know about you, but I need somebody next to me in this battle. It's when I feel like nobody is next to me and I'm alone that all of a sudden I begin to get attacked and I begin to feel weakened, and I don't know if I'm going to make it. I need somebody next to me on this wall to help me build that wall. Here's the last thing. You guys can come to music if you want. Here's the last thing. The wall is built through encouragement and perseverance. The wall is built through encouragement and perseverance. You know, Nehemiah 
He was not a he was not a contractor. He wasn't a construction worker. He was the king's cupbearer. He didn't really know anything about building the wall, but what he did know something about was encouragement. He knew how to take a group of people and say, "Listen, guys, we're going to build this wall." I know it's difficult. I know that you're being attacked. I know that there's opposition. I know that we got Sam Ballots out here criticizing us and all of these things going wrong. But he knew how to encourage people and push them on to the next thing. And listen, we've got challenges ahead of us. And here's the other thing. If we didn't have challenges, I would be worried. I would be worried if we were even doing God's work at all. Because as long as you're doing God's work, there are going to be challenges but he began to encourage them, and he listed all of the people's names so he could, he could encourage them specifically. But he also listed another group of people's names. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5, he listed the Tekoites, and it says that their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of God. Because, listen, there are always going to be that group of people who choose to not put their shoulders to the work of God and sit back and criticize instead. Y'all ever known anybody like that? They're not going to put their hand to the work, but they'll be glad to sit back and criticize the work that you're doing. And you know what? When you have people like that, the best thing you can do is pray for them. Bless them in the name of the Lord. Shake off what they've said to you. Don't let it get into your spirit because you're going to be criticized. You know, Donald and I, Donald handles a lot better than I do. Of course, he's been in the game a little bit longer. But when you're a pastor, no matter where you pastor at, you're going to get a letter probably about every, at least every month. Somebody giving all the lists of the things that you've done wrong, which is fun. I got one laugh. But listen, that's only natural. It's going to happen, right? People are not going to agree with you. People are going to criticize you. Things are going to come against you. Expect it. Receive it. Embrace it. Count it joy when those things happen. And don't allow those people to set you apart from the work because here's what happens. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, listen to this. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at, at the time I had not hung the doors in the gates. He was, still, he was still thinking about building the wall. He said that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. I said to somebody this week, I said, when the enemy's trying to get you to come down to the Valley of Ono, if you go down there, you'll find out why they call it Ono. That's good, right? Y'all didn't laugh as hard as I thought you would. He said, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing, a, listen to this. The enemy's calling you down. He's saying, come down here and meet me in the Valley of Ono. We need to talk about something. And the Bible says that he did it four times. That he was not giving up because sometimes the enemy will persevere in resisting you. Sometimes the enemy has more perseverance than we do. And he comes to him four times, but here's every time, four times in a row, while Nehemiah is building the wall, he says, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And that's what I'm telling somebody this morning is that you are doing a great work. What you're doing for God, your devotional life, your prayer life, no matter how small it may seem right now, you're doing a great work. And I'm telling you, you just need to persevere. 
And I know that the enemy has come to resist you. The enemy has tried to get you to quit what you're doing for God. He's tried to get you to quit. He's tried to get you to come down. But here's what you ought to say to him. You ought to say, no. You may not think it's a good work, but it's a great work that I'm doing. And why should I cease doing this work that God has called me to do and come down to you? Four times he has to do it in order to resist him. Here's the last verse that I want to read. 1 Corinthians 15. You can put that up. I want you to get this verse in your spirit. Here's what it says. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, the reason that Paul said this is because he knew that whenever you're working hard for God and, and God is strengthening you and giving you things to do and God is calling you to do something, there is such a temptation to get weary in well-doing. There's such a temptation to say, what I'm doing is not causing anything to happen, God. Why don't I give up? Why don't I just let this go? Because nothing's changing. Nothing seems to be happening. And I'm telling you, oftentimes when the resistance is the strongest, it's because you're at the point of breakthrough. And he's saying, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not without purpose. It's not without meaning. Amen? Stand to your feet with me. Listen, if you would just bow your heads a minute. First thing I want to know, I want to know if, if this message is speaking to you because what I personally believe and this is what, what I felt like the Lord said to me is that there have been people here recently within the past month that what you're doing for God and it may be even, like I said, it may seem to be the smallest thing but I just want you to be honest with yourself. And if you've experienced discouragement, if the thought has come to your mind that you're going to quit, that you're going to give up and what God's asking you to do, if the thought has come to your mind that I just don't feel like I can go on any further, I just want to step away from, what, from, from this whole thing. I just want to step away from this whole thing. And you've been discouraged. Maybe you've even been depressed. If, if, if you've been in any of those things, would you just lift your hand and let me know? See, and here's what I want to tell you. This is going to sound crazy, but that's a good thing. And the reason it's a good thing is because the enemy knows that you're coming into his territory and that you've been chosen to rebuild this wall. And right now he's been attacking. He's been attacking from different places all over the place. But right now I believe that God is going to bring about some change and some transformation. I want to pray for you all. And then I want everybody that will. I want you to come around this altar because I want us to pray with one another. I want us to pray for one another. Sometimes it just helps if I've got somebody beside me that I want to pray for. And there's a few people specifically that, that I want to pray for after this. But listen, lift up your hands. I just want us to pray right now. Heavenly Father, God, these are your people. You love them, Lord. You love them so much you died for them on the cross. But Holy Spirit, you've spoken to them this morning, I believe, and you're calling them into something deeper, God. You're always calling us deeper. And God, we face resistance not because you're not with us, but because you are. The Bible says 
that when Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted of the devil. And I believe that there's some people here right now that they've been driven into the wilderness. And here's what I want to say to you is that the devil wants you in the wilderness, but God wants you in the wilderness too because he's setting you up for your own personal victory in this area right now. And so, Lord, right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray for a release of hope, God, for a, re a release of supernatural faith and encouragement and joy. Just like what Nehemiah said, he says, do not weep or be sorrowful. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And Father, right now, I just ask that you would begin to move among us, that you would strengthen, that you would encourage, that you would bring new life. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.